and welcome to the Great Thinkers podcast, in which current fellows of the British Academy introduce the academics that have inspired their work and shape how we see the world today. Michael Howard, FBA, was awarded the Military Cross for his service in the Second World War, before turning to academia, becoming one of the country's most celebrated military historians. In this episode, Hugh Strawn, FBA, traces Howard's unusual journey from active participant in conflict to the leading expert on its study. My name is Hugh Strawn. I'm Professor of International Relations at St Andrews. For many years, I was Professor of the History of War at Oxford. The great thinker I've chosen is military historian Sir Michael Howard. Michael was born in 1922 educated at a school with a strong military tradition, Wellington. Like many of his generation, his career at university was interrupted by the Second World War. In 1941, he joined the army and served in the Italian campaign, but he returned to Oxford, took a first-class degree, and then in 1947 was appointed to an assistant lectureship in history at King's College London. He left King's in 1968 to return to Oxford. But by then, he was Professor of War Studies, having established what is now the world's leading department in that subject. This, in other words, was a military historian who himself had seen war at first hand. I have here an extract written by Michael Howard in 1961 in a a famous essay on the use and abuse of military history, which I think explains a great deal of Michael's own engagement with the subject and the reasons for it. These are his words. The young soldier in action for the first time may find it impossible to bridge the gap between war as it has been painted and war as it really is. Between the way in which he, his peers, his officers and his subordinates should behave and the way in which they actually do. He may be dangerously unprepared for cowardice and muddle and horror when he actually encounters them unprepared even for the cumulative attrition of diet and fatigue. But nevertheless the myth can and often does sustain him, even when he knows, with half his mind, that it is untrue. This is the point where, logically, we might have turned to Michael himself for comment. Sadly, Michael feels because of his deafness as he gets older that he can't do that. He's now in his late 90s. But fortunately, we have here in the room with us Sir Lawrence Friedman, formerly Professor of War Studies at King's College London himself. Laurie, you were taught by Michael, a privilege I did not have. Would you like to start our conversation by just saying a few words about that experience by Michael as your supervisor and in many ways, of course, subsequently your mentor? I mean, he was at the peak of his career at this point, enormous influence. When I went to do my field work in the United States, I had letters of introduction to almost anybody I might wish to meet, and he wouldn't let me get away with any sloppiness. If you've got a good argument, you should make it. But it was always encouraging. He took an interest in my career. It was because of him that I went to work at the Institute for Strategic Studies after Oxford, and indeed almost every stage of my career, at least for the, in, in the early years, uh, he was always there, often on the interview panel, but it was always there and always somebody I could talk to. And then you had these sort of rather grand rooms in All Souls, which 
Given my background, I just almost found overwhelming sort of the extent of his library and so on. You felt right from the start you were meeting with somebody who was absolutely at the peak of his profession and, and influence. I think for me as a military historian, his history of the Franco-Prussian War, which was his first big success really as a book, a beautifully written book, beautifully constructed book, which had come out in 1961. But that was a book which, in the eyes of other historians, made him a proper historian. And even reading it today, there are resonances of modernity which are striking. The war, the Franco-Prussian War, as Michael writes, had entered a stage in which terror and counter-terror were to play a formidable part. He's not talking about terrorism in the sense of Al-Qaeda, but he is talking about terrorism and terror uh, in the sense that armed forces were using it and non-uniform bodies and insurgents were using it. That was a transformational book, not just about Michael's reputation, but about the possibility of doing military history seriously. Because before that, it had been done by people whose credibility was not on their academic discipline, but on their military background. And it had been seen a bit of a sort of dilettante sort of area. Even when I started, it was quite a niche activity. There weren't really very many of us. I think what's really striking when you think of that as a field dominated before that, partly by serving officers, as you said, and partly by people who, like Michael himself, were writing for the papers, Basil Littleheart, Cyril Falls, those sort of people, both of whom were on the fringes of academic life. And what they were doing was not rigorous in the way in which an academic would regard the study of the history of wars as rigorous. And Michael's, you know, always argued for the idea that war is a very distinct aspect of human activity and that therefore across time there is enough that is similar there for it to be appropriate to think in terms of both the past and the present and possibly also the future because war has features that are distinct from any other form of human activity. And for that reason, war studies is a coherent subject for study. Is that a fair portrayal? You are looking at an extreme form of human activity, and therefore there are recurring themes and patterns. But I think you also have a sense from Michael, it's all changing over time. And the job of the historian in all of this is to show that the things that may similar sorts of issues, the nature of battle, for example, may look superficially the same, but look at it more carefully and you see the context has changed, technology has changed and so on. Therefore, it's not really the same, but there's lots of things to look at and ask about because you can compare and contrast over time. Michael, when he was drawn out of Oxford to go off to the war, found himself commissioned in the Coldstream Guards. In Italy, fought up the east coast of Italy. He won a military cross for his courage. And having served himself as a soldier, Michael was aware of the relationship, if you like, between the study of war as an academic and the practice of war. And I think, you know, what's striking is that neither of us has served in the armed forces. Most of those who now study war at universities have not served in the armed forces. Michael represents an older generation which, thanks to the two world wars and to the experience of conscription, had served. And I, I remember, as a young academic, being approached by a chap called Tom Howarth, who had been with one of Montgomery's liaison officers in the Second World War, and who'd been asked about 
doing Montgomery's official biography, and he wanted somebody to work with him. Tom had got a military cross, and I said to him, I don't know if I'm qualified to write about this because I haven't served. And he, Tom Howarth, turned around and said to me, of course you're qualified to write about this. This is nonsense. You don't have to have military service. And yet, here we are writing about war, which really we have never directly experienced. And Michael has directly experienced it. Do you think that gives him an edge? And how has it played out in terms of his career and his teaching as an academic? He didn't talk about it very much to me. I only really found out the extent of what he'd done in his wonderful autobiography, Captain Professor. It is absolutely fascinating and very honest and candid about what was going on. And I think what you get from that is whatever the strategists are telling you and the high command thinks they're doing, the actual practice is much more chaotic, random, arbitrary, surprising and, and so on. And I think that gives a sense of sort of realism that you and I may understand because we've read enough of this stuff. And you know, my father had been a regular naval officer during the war and so on, so a bit of it was handed down that way. But it brings a sense of realism. I don't think it's essential to the study of war. Um, the importance of it for Michael, I mean, it got him into the field because he was asked to do a regimental history. So, yes, I mean, I think it was an important aspect of his career. It gave something to his writing, but he didn't dwell on it. I'm tempted, partly because my own father served in the Italian campaign, going up the east coast of Italy. Michael went up the west coast towards Florence, and my father went up towards Trieste. But my father used to describe, particularly that winter of 1944-45, as a deeply unpleasant, bad weather. The only relief was the Germans didn't have any significant air force at that point, and so you were not as vulnerable to air attack as you might have been. But that experience of soldiering at a very basic level, which Michael describes very well, the experience of fear, the experience of disorientation, the capacity of armies to muck things up. But I think as like many men who reach advanced age, who served in the war, as they get older, they get readier to talk about it. Uh, and I think Michael has come to talk about it more often. And one of the things Michael's always had is that recognition from other soldiers that he's done it. And I think many of us, when we taught at Santos, were aware that because Michael had seen combat, because he had a military cross, there was an authority which he could command in the presence of other people in uniform, which came from that experience. And I think, on the one hand, there's a strong sort of humanist sense. Never forget what war's about, what it does to people, how awful it is. But at the same time, you've got to write about it dispassionately. Let's hear Michael in his own words, in his autobiography, Captain Professor, describing the action in which he won the military cross at Salerno. First, we had to find our way to the starting point, which meant leaving our scattered slit trenches after dark. Still under spasmodic mortar fire, shaking out into single file and moving in the correct order over steep mountain paths to line up along the perimeter wall of the hospital. That took far longer than expected. The files lost one another. The platoons somehow got into the wrong order. We eventually arrived at the start line long after H-hour, almost too late to catch up with the artillery barrage. Two out of my three sections had disappeared altogether and turned up only as the attack began. From the dark hill facing us, streams of tracer bullets were already zipping low over the wall behind which we were eventually formed up. 
Once again, I had an absurd sense of déjà vu. This was just another B-movie, and I was playing the David Niven role as the gallant platoon commander. All right, I thought, if I was cast as David Niven, I'd better behave like David Niven. So I hissed, Right, over with me! I find a resonance in that passage with how I heard stories of troops going to Iraq in 2003 who were watching war movies. This was a way of coming to grips with the reality and providing themselves a way in which they could conceptualise what they were about to do or what they were actually going to do. I think one of Michael's most important contributions to the study of military history in Britain was his readiness, and this is in some ways remarkable after the Second World War, to bring the German tradition into the mainstream here in the United Kingdom. Michael's best known as the translator and editor of the definitive English-language edition of Karl von Clausewitz's On War, completed in collaboration with the American-German historian Peter Perret. That made accessible the most important theoretical treatment of war that we possess, originally published in German as vom Krieger between 1832 and 1834. Laurie, what do you think of the Clausewitz translation? That book showing we're part of an intellectual tradition was incredibly important. This man to whom reference had regularly been made could now read him again with essays telling you why he was important. And it gave a sort of historical legitimacy to the study of war that it might not otherwise have had. Because it all seems terribly contemporary and responding to the latest events. And if you ask what book of Michael's has been read more than anything else, it's that one. And of course, Michael himself will say it's the work of which he is the most proud. Almost certainly it sold more copies in the English translation than it has in any of its previous editions. And On Wars had an extraordinary influence on thinking about war in the last quarter of the 20th century. People like Colin Powell read it when he was thinking about the experience of the Vietnam War. It was, in some ways, of course, a translation for its times, and I don't mean that in any pejorative sense. I mean, one of the things that Michael often says about that translation is having seen action himself in Italy with the Coldstream Guards in the Second World War, what was important about Clausewitz for him was that Clausewitz had seen action too. And so what he wanted to do was to produce a translation which he felt serving officers would read because they could understand it. And as you listen to this section in the chapter on friction and war, bear in mind Michael's own account of his experience at Salerno. This is Clausewitz. Everything in war is very simple, but the simplest thing is difficult. The difficulties accumulate and end by producing a kind of friction that is inconceivable unless one has experienced war. Imagine a traveller who late in the day decides to cover two more stages before nightfall. It should be an easy trip, but at the next station he finds no fresh horses. The country grows hilly, the road bad, night falls, and finally, after many difficulties, he is only too glad to reach a resting place with any kind of primitive accommodation. It is much the same in war. 
Countless minor incidents, the kind you can never really foresee, combine to lower the general performance so that one always falls far short of the intended goal. Michael Howard is a man who felt that if you were studying war and had something coherent to say about current issues, then you had a moral responsibility to engage. You were obliged to provide a sense of context which might otherwise be lacking, and has himself written. A study of the past can usefully supplement the more numerous and influential analysis of current world events based on disciplines which suffer from a notable lack of historical data. How did this come about, Laurie? He was at King's College, close to Fleet Street. So though he was writing on the Franco-Prussian War and all of these sorts of things, he kept on being asked about nuclear policy, colonial wars or whatever, and he obliged. So I think he became a sort of a hybrid, not because of any academic interest, just because he kept on being asked questions and felt he ought to respond. And then he was one of the founders of the International Institute for Strategic Studies 60 years ago, almost exactly, which arose after intense debates about what to do about nuclear weapons. So I think it was actually the policy issues that drew him into this area. And Michael's stance in the nuclear age was to support the use of force as implicit in international relations. He believed its function was to keep order. War, he argued, should be used with restraint and rationally, in a deliberate way and with a clear sense of purpose. And states, by doing that, make the maintenance of peace possible as well as making the conduct of war possible. And they therefore need robust military capabilities, not just to fight the war, but to keep the peace. As he wrote himself in Studies in War and Peace in 1970, Nuclear weapons have meant that force, if used at all, must be used with skill and restraint. The object of all war is a better peace, and the nature of that peace will be determined not only by who wins, but by the way in which the war has been fought. And I think today, as we've lost that immediacy provided by nuclear weapons in our lives, nuclear deterrence has become remote from how we think about the dangers of war and the threat of war. We've also lost that realisation that they can provide a degree of order and that deterrence can have a moral value and may even provide the peace on which we depend. In 1980, Margaret Thatcher, then the Prime Minister, chose Michael to be the Regis Professor of Modern History at Oxford, a post that carries significant administrative responsibilities within the history faculty, a post which probably left him rather less time for his own work and research than he might have liked, and which in some respects I suspect he was happy to shuffle off when in 1989 he was given the opportunity to cross the Atlantic as the first ever Robert A. Lovett, Professor of Military and Naval History at Yale. He has become a role model for those of us in the field. He has redefined what the study of military history is by expanding what we understand to be military history and relating it to war studies, to the study of strategy, and emphasised the responsibility on the academic 
not just to think in terms of his or her own discipline and how you can further that, but what the relationship is between that discipline and a wider public understanding. Here is somebody who has occupied almost every pinnacle there is in the profession and has been rewarded accordingly. He's both a member of the Order of Merit and a Companion of Honour. And I said to him, Michael, who was the last person to be both OM and CH? And with a twinkle in his eye and only a microsecond of pause, he replied, Winston Churchill. I think lest it be thought that everything about Michael was sweetness and light, I have seen some of the most extraordinary put-downs, not always gentle, often deserved. And actually, when not deserved, he could also be capable of apologising. But his presence uh, was always a powerful one. The other thing, perhaps is a sensitive subject, but ought to be mentioned, is his homosexuality. It's a very, very important theme of his memoir. You have to remember that he was developing his career when big names had been brought down by scandal. I think that affected his personality, his way of living, and the way in which he gradually came out. I think it was very important to him. He took the opportunity, and he had a partner who he met in the late 50s who was still his partner. I think it's quite an important part of his personality and shaped his relationships with the institutions of which he was involved. I would absolutely agree with that. And I think, of course, he was lucky during the Second World War when actually people were much more tolerant because what mattered was whether you could do your job properly or not do it properly. And people were not making judgments in the way that a regular professional army in peacetime might have made judgments. And I have to say, when you mention... Devastating critiques. I inadvertently received my first rebuke from Michael when I inadvertently touched on exactly that issue without intending in any way, but realised what a sensitive issue it must have been for him. Every time I remember that, and I still am appalled by my own crassness and the way in which that arose, I have to remember the wonderful letters I've received from Michael always supportive, always understanding, always trying to find a solution to a problem, always ready to be direct, to say, this is not a sensible thing to do, this is a sensible thing to do. Strong, clear advice when I was applying for jobs, and ultimately, of course, it was his influence that persuaded me to go to Oxford against some doubts on my part, but that was the most powerful (laughs) moment in terms of my succumbing to advice from the great man. There was one point where he'd lost a, a secretary and all of a sudden you got these cards with, yes, Michael. And, and I asked him about this. He said, well, I realised how much time was wasted with all these, I do hope you were well and so nice to see. I met so-and-so the other day. And I always thought he anticipated the texting age before everybody else. he get to the point very, very quickly indeed. Laurie, when I went to Oxford, I honestly thought the Michael Howard role model was unsustainable, that it was no longer possible to be a professor of military history and a professor of war studies. In practice, I found I was expected to do that because, of course, that was the example Michael had set. That was what people expected of military history. And you, Laurie, you found that too. You've had to do both. And, of course, we've both benefited from following that example. Uh, He has had so many different roles in terms of how he has communicated, but he's capable of writing the short essay and the big book, capable of writing the work of synthesis and the work of scholarship, and crucially, having time to want to know what 
the new research student is doing, where the current of research is going. But even now, he still wants to know who's doing what and what's happening. To have that career, still publishing into his 80s, and still very much alert to the issues in his 90s is a pretty impressive life. It's been an extraordinary career that has embraced the past of war, the present of war, and to some extent the future of war. And all done with a degree of authority and a clarity of expression. It is an extraordinary achievement. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the British Academy. To hear more like this, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud or your own podcast app by searching The British Academy. To find out more about the work the British Academy does, including upcoming events, please visit thebritishacademy.ac.uk.